Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am Nate Swick. I want to get you over to the panel discussion quickly. It's the end of the month. And that, of course, means this month in birding. We have a great one this time around. But one quick organizational note before we go. However, we are coming to the end of our summer nesting season appeal, which is our annual fundraiser for the ABA's Young Birder Programs. If you make a donation before June 30th, which is coming up pretty quickly, your donation will be matched by our board of directors. So it is a great opportunity to make a donation go twice as far as it would otherwise. But the time is running short. So if you're going to make that donation, there's no better time to do it. You can do that at aba.org slash appeal. That out of the way, let's get to the fun stuff. This month in birding with Gabriel Foley, Sean Milnes, and Mo Stike after this week's Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the end of June 2023. We'll check in with Alaska first, where the spring rarity season is still on fire. Both Asian brown flycatcher and Eurasian siskin, the former the ABA's seventh, the latter the ABA's sixth or so record, were seen on Shemaya Island. And a beautiful lesser whitethroat, only the ABA's second record of this species, the first was a fall record from Gamble more than a decade ago, was photographed at Utkiakvik, formerly Barrow, on the mainland. Another noteworthy high-latitude sighting comes from Nunavut, where a great cormorant photographed east of Bylot Island on the north side of Baffin Island is a first for that territory. Staying in Canada and moving south to Quebec, that province's first record of Lewis's woodpecker was seen at Old Fort. This is the second sighting of this bird in eastern Canada this year. There was a long-staying individual in Ontario from January through May. Hard to say whether this is the same bird. I suppose it's possible. And the Limpkin Express makes another new stop, this time to Colorado, where that state's first record was seen in El Paso County, which is quite a jump. The next closest is probably the Texas Panhandle, a bird from just about exactly one year ago. The jump across the arid western Great Plains seems like it would be a difficult one for this marsh bird, but once they get into the river systems of the west, they could spread rapidly. For my money, I think New Mexico is due next. If they reach the Rio Grande, then the sky is the limit. One other interesting bird seen this week was a blue-gray tanager in Harris County, Texas, which would, if accepted, be a state first and an ABA first record. While this species is widespread in the tropics, even in urban environments, and has been considered to be a good candidate for turning up in the ABA area at some point, it is a very common cage bird in Mexico and not known to be much of a migrant. There are blue-gray tanagers in northern Mexico, quite close to the border, in Monterey and Ciudad Victoria, for instance, but those are suspected to be birds that derived from escaped cage birds rather than naturally expanding populations. So it's hard to know exactly how to approach this sighting, though I think it is likely to be written off. Worth noting, however. Those are the recent highlights, but for the full list, check out the ABA Rare Bird Alert on Fridays at aba.org slash RBA. You can also follow along with all of the Rare Bird news in our ABA Rare Bird Alert group on Facebook and in ABA community. Hi, this is Julie Davis, chair of the American Birding Association's Board of Directors, and I want to ask for your support as we approach the end of our nesting season appeal, supporting the ABA's Young Birder programs. The ABA Board is matching all donations toward our nesting season appeal up to $17,500 through June 30th. This means with your donation today, 
you can double your impact to send a young birder to camp or provide an opportunity for a young birder to partner with experts in the field through our Young Birder Mentoring Programs. You can double your impact to help these teens experience the wonders of nature while exploring the world of birding through art, science, and travel. Double your impact to make a difference in the life of a young person and support the next generation of birders and conservationists by making a donation before June 30th online at aba.org appeal or call us at 800-850-2473. It is the end of June and that means it's time for this month in birding where we round up a panel of interesting and thoughtful birding friends to round up the latest birding news from around the ABA area and beyond. Here in the Northern Hemisphere, June has the longest days of the year, and we might just have the longest episode of the podcast. <laughs> the sort of items that we have to discuss today, but let's welcome the panel and get to it. Uh, he is a Bird Atlas coordinator for Maryland and DC. Must be a busy time for that. And one of the drivers of the bird names for birds movement, which will be relevant here in a little bit. It's Gabriel Foley. Welcome back, Gabriel. Thanks, Nate. Happy to be here. Happy to have you. His bird podcast might be on hiatus, but his bird takes never are. Formerly, currently, always of the Foul Mouths podcast. <laughs> Hello, Sean Milnes. Hey, thanks for having me back on. <laughs> of course, my pleasure. And she is one of our friends from the Bird Shirt podcast, which returned from hiatus just last month. Please check it out. My favorite food truck disaster companion is perhaps a story for another podcast. It is Mo Stike. Hi, Mo. Hello. Thanks for having me. Of course. Let's jump right into the good stuff. Late in May, Kevin Winker, an Alaska ornithologist and member of the American Ornithological Society North American Checklist Committee, published a preprint about the history of bird names as what he calls critical communication infrastructure and the current discussion movement, what have you regarding changing those names with a particular focus on eponyms. Many of us here have been involved at various points in this discussion. We've certainly talked about it here on the podcast before. I have some thoughts about this preprint. I think it is thorough. I think there's a lot of good information in there. I think it's misguided in a few places, and I think it misses the point a little bit. But I'm going to save my thoughts for later. I'm curious what you think, especially you, Gabriel, since you are cited (laughs) (laughs) in the preprint. What do do you all think about this? Where where are we in this movement, this long, slow growing movement to change bird names? What do you think this recent preprint, this commentary has to say about that? For me, right off the bat, when I saw this come out, my first thought was not only is Kevin Winker, you know, on the the committee, uh, the NACC, but he acknowledges many other members of the committee in the acknowledgement section, mm-hmm. thanking them for their comments on on this piece. So, so to me, this this reads as like this is even though he says it's not, but to me it reads as this is NACC's stance on yeah. where they're coming from with the whole uh, renaming discussion. And this is right about the time where we're expecting the AOS's uh, English Bird Names Committee to come out with their recommendations, mm-hmm. um, which I suspect are not very similar to what Winker wrote. Um, so... The thing that I don't know is if 
the recommendations are very at odds with what the committee believes or wants to do, mm-hmm. then what happens? Are these really just recommendations? Yeah. Are, do these have, like, will, will AOS kind of enforce the recommendations or what, what happens actually? No, I've I've no idea. <laughs> yeah. It's it's a complete mystery. Yeah. Shocking. The the history of this uh, of this whole thing that's uh shocking that there isn't any clarity yet. So Yeah, I think that the the NACC has sort of operated for a long time as a very independent body of the AOS because it, the AOS is from just my personal interactions with a lot of the people on the on the in the leadership of the organization, people on the ad hoc committee that they put together to talk about this stuff, they're very much in favor of addressing the eponym issue um, head on. And the NACC seems very much not in favor of that. So I, yeah, I have no idea what's going to happen, just like you, Gabriel. And I'm curious to see where we go from here because I wonder how much authority the AOS has to enact this stuff at the apparent opposition of the NACC. The NACC seems not to agree with any of these recommendations. So what then? This whole piece was really, it was a very interesting read from start to finish. And Mm -hmm. like the same, I, I, I was left wondering what, I mean, for me, the my, I was wondering what was the point. Um, Fair period. <laughs> it seemed like a really long Twitter rant. Like it, <laughs> it didn't feel like a a paper for me. I, I I was I was just waiting for my breaks in uh, in, in word count to you know to click on through. But it, it, the, the moral the moral stance on it, calling moral and imperialism i think that's what the word he kept using yeah. there's all of these statements that are just like it, when we start getting ethics and philosophy involved in an, in an ornithological issue a science-based issue basically which i get that there's social implications and all of that but they've we've been trying to shirk this the social side of it like on their end it seems mm-hmm. where, where when you start grasping for ethics then then the issue is having a problem like there there yeah. isn't there isn't a point at that point it's semantics and again semantics are philosophy <laughs> so <laughs> i don't I, I i he lost me because sasur i studied this stuff in school my i have a theory degree i did a i wrote my thesis on based on Saussure and where you know where he went with uh with with linguistics and how it is unrolled into mod- like our modern society so I- i'm not quite sure how we're going to talk about like moral imperialism or whatever and then also bring up basic linguistics from the late 1800s that doesn't have hold relevance at this point in time the stuff he's literally the stuff he's talking about was was ba- written based on notes from students of Saussure, like all of this stuff is, that's the only written history of a lot of this stuff. So I don't know. I don't know what the point was. I would have gone cherry to, picking. Yeah, yeah, I would have gone to Ridian maybe on this, gone with a little bit of Derrida, even <laughs> Roland Bart, but yeah, none of this. So but, that's, that's where I got stuck on a lot of stuff and I was going back and forth with Gabriel about it last night. Just like, I can't, I can't deal with the theory. Like stay away <laughs> from the theory and just stick to what you're good at, please. Cause you completely lost the 
the subject. It was like halfway through and it was just over. So <laughs> just leave it for Twitter next time, I think. Do you have any thoughts, Mo? <laughs> I wish I had some thoughts, honestly. Like <laughs> so much of this was like over my head. And to your point, Sean, like maybe it's because maybe intentionally it went- so. Yeah. Yeah. Like like it's trying to just kill you with words. Yeah. <laughs> The thing for me, Sean, like your point about like, it sounds like a Twitter rant, like, yeah, that's probably why it's over my head. I can't thread roll this thing and get me the like basics of what it's talking about. I think more importantly, nobody asked for this. Like, (laughs) (laughs) it's a lot of words that I don't actually think that like anyone really needed this insight in a, in a scientific publication is kind of how I feel about it. I don't know. Like, that's just me. (laughs) But like all the politics around it and all the, I mean, scientific naming is a beast and I'm not even going to pretend like I understand the complications that come along with that or propose a better system for going along with it. But yeah, I think any, any relevant organization should be listening to current cultural changes and finding a way to adapt with them. I I totally agree. Um, I think that's that's such an important point because, I mean, he makes the point himself that names are simply labels. That's like one of the blocks Mm -hmm. of text. I'm like, yeah, that's what we're saying. Labels can be changed. It's the naming, as long as we agree with what the name describes, then it doesn't necessarily matter what the name is. If someone comes up to you and says, hey, I saw a blue crane the other day, uh, you would know that that is a great blue heron and you would know exactly what they're talking about, even if it was not the official common name of that species. So as a communication tool, there's no, there's no issue there. And for me, that's the same thing with a lot of these bird names. You you change them and people still know what they're talking you're talking about because we all agree what they are. And even if you use the old names, we still know what you're talking about because yeah, we've agreed exactly. on that. Like it this it like this is the stuff is so arbitrary. Yeah. Um and it just doesn't need all this intellectualism attached baggage, to it. I think Not is baggage. The- yeah. Mm-hmm. The moral moral imp- whatever the term was that you said, Sean, I've forgotten it already, but um, it doesn't, it doesn't need all this. These are just names and these are names for birders and they're names for people who enjoy birds and uh, whatever level you enjoy them, you use the names. So someone, some lady who watches birds in her feeders enjoys her red birds and I enjoy my Northern Cardinals. We're enjoying the same thing. We know what we're talking about. Yeah. Like why, there's no conflict here. We change the names. We use them interchangeably, whatever, just, just change them. And yeah. I, I know I'm, I taught I'm going to let you guys talk. I'm sorry no, for continuing right. to go on this, but it, it just, it just drives me up the wall because it doesn't need to be this person by person research into the doings of these 18th century men. It doesn't have to be that. We don't have to do that. We can just wipe out all the eponyms and we don't have to have this discussion. Every time one of these names come up, we can just get rid of them all. And then we're start from scratch. <laughs> I would say that it. Because that like there are reasons it's not just we don't have to do it individual by individual we should just remove them completely because because it's it's not just the issue that john kirk townsend was not a great guy you know or or audubon or you know whoever you want to pick that they weren't great um and we shouldn't honor them the the issue is like deeper than that Mm -hmm. in that we shouldn't be 
using wildlife as a way to uphold and honor these these people. You know, Jordan likes to say, my partner Jordan, um, she likes to say, you know, the most frequent. Um, she likes to say that, you know, a bench is a great place for that or a library or something. Yeah. When we say that, that these names are verbal statues, what we are saying is that these birds were named, uh, after these people to actually honor them. And so even if those names are arbitrary, they still do have that value associated with them. Mm -hmm. And especially when you consider the outlook that we have in general on our world, which is very seeing it as a as a source of resources and you know conservation tends to fall pretty low on the priority list. Having these honorifics on wildlife does not help reduce that that viewpoint on wildlife as resources. I mean, he, he rightly makes the point that, you know, this, this idea that these birds should not be named for the, or just organisms in general should not be named for humans uh, is one that has been in around for a very long time. Like bird names for bird is hardly the first mm-hmm. people to come along and say, we got to get rid of these names. He cites uh, Swainson who, of, of thrush and hawk fame. It's like, we fully concur with those who censure the practice of naming species after persons with no scientific reputation. Um, Matthew Haley, who did a great talk at the, the Wilson Ornithological Society meeting recently, um, did a talk about bird names, and he included a quote by um, C.W. Peel, who was a if he wasn't a founder of the country, was you know running in that circle. Um, and this is like 1799. He says. There's also another unmeaning custom, which it is still more essential for us to get rid of. I am mean that of naming subjects of nature after persons who have plumed themselves with those childish ideas of their being the first discoverers of such or such things. Like, man, that he's not mincing words about this. This, this is stuff that's been in the water for a long time and it's coming back up. And I'm sorry if it seems like it's, it's a lot, but the arguments to retain them just don't make a lot of sense to me anymore. Things being a lot is not an excuse. Like, yeah. I mean, if you you took a job, you have to, if you don't want the job, then it's easy to step down from said job, right? Especially if it's a volunteering job, like you don't have to do that. If you don't want to, then don't just don't do it, but don't write these long winded things. And, and, and all of this stuff, just like this, this is, we're over. I think everybody is over it. Just like, just do something yeah. already. And, and that's part of the reason why I'd really like to see them just get rid of all of them because I, I do not look forward to this gradual uh, procedure oh. in which we have to argue about every single individual person who has a bird named after him. I like that. Just <laughs> does not, that does not sound like my idea of a good time. Yeah. I'm sorry for a good discussion. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> yeah, Kirtland by all accounts, great guy, Alexander mm-hmm. Wilson, he holds up well, eh, but my God, like this is too much. I don't, I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. <laughs> and they're going to be, their names are still going to be attached to these birds for at least the next 50 years because every single person, person for the next 50 years is going to say formally known as Kirtland's Warbler. It's That's not right. like, right. this isn't like the end of this person's lineage by all. any means. So. All right. That was good. Let's, uh, let's get on to other stuff. Uh, we will move on. <laughs> so hard uh, to move on. There was a topic where he talks about, you know, maybe some people in the future will 
uh, hopefully they'll look on us kindly because of the the way we've used fossil fuels and whatnot. And I was like, yeah, well, maybe they won't. That's that's fine if they don't. That means society's moved forward in a productive way. Like, I'm fine with that. It should should be that, that alone is a reason to like be having this discussion because it is a direct reminder to you that the future will look back on you and it will judge mm-hmm. it will judge the society as a whole and it will judge individuals and this sh- should show you that you should be critically evaluating the morals and the standards of your current day, your current society, and you should be making your own personal decisions about what is right and what is wrong and how you will act. And you shouldn't just go along with the flow. I think that that alone, that reminder to be critical in in your thinking is enough of a reason for this discussion. Yes. Morals like language are alive. They change, and we have to be aware uh, constantly of what potential there is 10 minutes in front of us. Like, this is completely right. Absolutely. At the end of the of Winker's paper, he goes into a little bit about, like, proposing a different path forward with, like, expanding knowledge horizontally and multilingual. Yeah. And I... I I have no idea what he's talking about. Um, like, I have no idea what he's proposing to do. do. Do any of you? That was his moral imperialism. That's like this thing that he was talking about with uh, how uh, the English language has sort of been forced as the as the moderate standard in the world over time and all of this stuff he's not um he's not allowing for like industrialization to have a part in any of this stuff or colonialism or any of these things he's just sort of like blaming it on us now like calling moral imperial like that's the basis of moral imperialism is like instead of moving forward you're just you're just spreading yourself as far as you can you know, it's like personal imperialism. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. The line, uh, changing it to be more accurate and less offensive will diminish the effectiveness of our communication. Wow. Is, uh, a heck of a thing to read. Having a hard time with language there, guy, isn't, isn't he? Yeah. <laughs> a little bit, a little bit. All right. I'm going to do my best to summarize what I've read. But no one come at me if I've not done this correctly. (laughs) I I don't know that I'd even know. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. All right. So I think most birders are familiar with like morning bird song, which is commonly called like the dawn chorus. Mm -hmm. And we've always kind of assumed that in highly in areas of highly concentrated bird songs, these crowded conditions mean how do we how are birds like getting their signals across to each other? Like, how are they finding a mate? How are they repelling their rivals? How are they doing all these things? Previous studies have shown that birds appear to pay selective attention to different sounds in their vicinity. They call this the cocktail party effect, which resonates with me very strongly, (laughs) as well as being able to differentiate their calls to stand out against background noises. For instance, how birds in cities will tend to sing louder or longer or at a higher pitch um, than birds that you'll find in rural areas. So this study kind of builds upon the findings from these other studies by investigating something called temporal avoidance, in which when there is an overlap of audio frequencies, birds will choose to sing at different times to avoid singing over pitches of birds with similar frequencies. I know that's kind of like circular, 
<laughs> no, no, I, I, I get you. I get it. Yeah. Yeah. So this group studied 370 minutes of early morning audio recordings over four days in a temperate forest, which was also kind of unique since most of these studies are done in tropical regions in, in North America. And from these recordings, they segmented clips into what they called pair clip combinations for when two birds would have overlapping frequencies. Um, and they also made a, uh, a point to exclude flyover birds. So not many Canada geese in this study, pretty much just like <laughs> birds that were in the, the vicinity while they were doing their recordings. And in short, as captured by the title of this article, when birds are singing at the same pitch, they will avoid singing at the same time. They are able to, I, I just like, I file this into like cool things that birds do that make them even cooler. You know what I mean? Like... <laughs> It's just amazing that birds can like take in their surroundings and make these split second decisions about how to communicate more effectively. Another cool thing about the finding was depending on how disruptive a certain bird's call might be depends on how hard a bird would work to work around like a competing song. So they're even able to like take those kinds of things into consideration. And it just like, I don't know. It was just one of those mind blowing studies to me. Yes, I agree. Uh, I have I have three comments, and I will give them to you uh, in order. First comment: uh, I was happy to see uh, Tessa Reinhardt's name yeah. on this. Uh, Tessa is uh, delightful and brilliant, and so doing a lot of really cool stuff uh, on uh, bird vocalizations. And uh, this is this is really neat. Second thing: uh, I really appreciate how they used common Eastern North American birds because they are all birds, those songs that I know very well and can uh, <laughs> hear in my head, which uh, helps a lot. Uh, things like red-eyed vireo, oven bird, wood thrush, etc. Yeah. And uh, three, I wonder if birds are able to on the fly switch key pitch or something. Yeah. Pitch. Thank you for coming up with the word I couldn't, I couldn't think of. Um, like, uh, like John Bon Jovi and living on a prayer at the end when he, he jumps up. Oh yeah, like Beyonce in uh, the end of like uh, um, Love on Top when she just keeps going up like an octave, exactly. like each time, yeah. like yeah, that'd be yeah. amazing. That's a much more um, millennial new octaves than, than Bon Jovi. <laughs> yeah, <That's exactly>. funny. <laughs> There's like some like super snotty Mariah Carey bird out there that's just like <laughs> not even. There's no one in their pitch Book range. range eight octaves. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, just, it would be it would be um, the competing Phoebe's at my house. Just like yeah. octave Phoebe Phoebe's of oct like Eastern Phoebe's just going up an octave that it like six a.m. Like you right. know, <laughs> this actually just occurred to me. Um, there's a park where I live here in Greensboro where a certain time in spring there's like a ton of wood thrushes uh, singing all in one place, which is a really cool thing to hear. Um, they don't breathe there, but they seem to really congregate there in the in migration. And I, I, like I'm I'm thinking back to my own experiences walking through this park and listening to these wood thrushes and how the wood thrushes that are right next to each other are singing in different in different pitches. Like one's like ew day and it's like ew day. You know, this yeah. So anyway, cool. yeah, it's cool. Like they're even within bird species they're able to figure this out. Uh, to your point, Nate, about like where the birds were located too, um, the Eastern Towhee appeared in 28% of these pair clip recordings or like yeah. 364 of them. And the Blue Ring Warbler only appeared in four. Oh, poor Blue <laughs> I thought warbler. those were just kind of like fun facts to come out of it. <laughs> that was everything I had to say about a very long article. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good article. And when you wake up early in the morning and you go out and you experience a dawn chorus and there's like, it's, it can feel absolutely overwhelming to, to have all these birds singing uh, at you. 
uh, not for you, but at you. It's one of those things that you realize after the fact um, how it's, it is like the whole spectrum, like every pitch is accounted for in a Don chorus. It's not like a bunch of birds singing on the same tone. And I'd like, it's, it's one of those things that feels kind of intuitive, but you don't really realize the reason for it until something like this comes out. Yeah. And you realize that the birds are, are doing this uh, purposefully. My only comment, I read the article. My only thing I could think of was how just dumb I felt for not even thinking of this while standing outside <laughs> during like, for, sure. for during a dawn chorus or something like that. Like, how did I not notice that as like... You're too busy trying to identify him. Yeah, absolutely <laughs> true. <laughs> it's a lot of work. Like, if you go out during a good dawn chorus yeah. to actually hear things that aren't a Cardinal or a Carolina Wren, like, it takes... It takes so much effort. Yeah. And I don't know if if you guys have ever felt this way, but you know, now that Merlin is a is a part of our life, you go out, you've you've been getting up early for the last few mornings. Sure. Wake up, you're out there, it's like the fourth day in a row. You're tired. You're listening to all these birds. You're loving it, but you're also tired. <laughs> and Merlin is just right there, just waiting to do all the work for you. Is this do you ever have that confession, uh, Gabriel? <laughs> you know, I haven't succumbed to it too much yet, but the, the thought that, you know, oh, I could just like stand here and watch the birds roll in and have Merlin do my IDs for me. Wouldn't have to worry about it. What a future. With the amount of Philadelphia Philadelphia Vireo being, yeah. being call, um, called out on uh, eBird, I have to I have to think that maybe too many people have been relying on that. <laughs> we are not a Philadelphia Vireo spot in the spring, and no. there was a lot this year. <laughs> I got to read this really cool paper about uh, how weather affects migrating birds. And uh, this is this was done by Nathan Cooper's team at the Smithsonian, uh, published in Movement Ecology very recently. And the idea was, okay, we know that weather really impacts birds and their movements. Um, and migration is a really sensitive time of year for birds, especially with their movements because they're traveling long distances. Um, so uh, how do individuals actually make decisions related to weather about when to leave? And so a lot of the broad scale questions around, you know, how do birds as a whole react to weather during migration? Those have been answered pretty well with with radar studies. Um, but the, the questions that are less clear um, are like, how does an individual bird make a decision about whether or not to leave? And I guess that the existing literature uh, actually has a lot of variation in how different weather variables affect a bird's decision to, 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 to leave or, or not. Um, and, they listed, you know, a whole bunch of these studies and how some were in support of this weather factor and others showed that it didn't impact and others were less, less certain. And they suggested that that, the authors of this paper suggested that it was because these studies were done at stopover sites for these birds. And so at a stopover site, in theory, you have a lot more things affecting your decision to leave. So rather than look at stopover sites, they decided to look at the very start of a migration. They looked at four different species of birds, 
Kirtland's, Blackpool, Warbler's uh, Red Start, and Swainson's Thrush. And they looked at them from five different locations. Uh, the Bahamas, Jamaica, Michigan, Quebec, and Nova Scotia. And uh, they, they basically wanted to see, okay, on the day that a bird decides, well, this is it, I'm starting migration, what is the weather factor that is influencing their decision? And they looked at cloud cover, precipitation, um, wind strength and direction, and then also um, the atmospheric pressure. And what they found was that like pretty much across all sites, species, um, and whether it was leaving from the breeding site, starting their, you know, southerly migration or the opposite, they found that it was atmospheric pressure that was, that was predicting the change the most. Um, I was surprised. I would have thought wind would have the biggest impact, but um, apparently it is atmospheric pressure falling, which predicts a, um, good weather um in in the future whenever we talk about like decisions that birds make i think that we sort of undervalue the internal lives of birds we think of decisions as very uh, conscious choices that human beings make and i wonder if birds are making these sorts of conscious choices as well it seems possible that they could be in their own way and also that the conscious choices that humans make are often <laughs> determined by factors that are less uh, less conscious than we would like to believe uh, sometimes. Now, maybe birds are more like us than we, we give them credit for. I have no idea. I just I find really, it sort of stuff. Like, like so. it, 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 really, it really does feel like a decision that they're making. It, like it's not just, it's not just uh, instinct. It is, this is when I need to go. Because not all of them go at this moment. Some of them stay put. And it feels like there's more going on than just... Uh, they feel the atmospheric pressure changing in some way, and then they and they respond. Even when you think about how they can sense the magnetic poles, and they can yeah. tell what's the moon and what's the sun, and you like use those kinds of things directionally. I'm like, I look out my window and ask Google what the weather's <laughs> going to be, and like hope that it's right. My ability to process the natural world. <laughs> just it makes me feel even dumber when i hear that other creatures can do these incredible things and there there is a there is a um an aspect of conscious choice going on here because there have been research done many many decades ago like very early in the when we scientists were looking at migration where they took like experienced birds birds that have migrated several times and um took them away from their typical roots and then they uh, did the same with juvenile birds, young birds, and took them away and then determined whether they were able to come back on track. And the, and the experienced birds were able to come, were able to get back on track at some point and the young birds just went south. <laughs> so there is something that they're remembering, they're thinking about, they're consciously making these choices to do this, to go this direction as opposed to the, the way that they're instinctually wanting to go. Um, that is, you know, probably means that they have a little more complex internal lives than we, we give them credit for, I guess. I mean, we know that like it, individuals return year after year yeah. to the yeah, same spot. I mean, I know it? yeah. it's my hummingbirds, like the same hummingbirds. They yeah. they knock at my window for when the feeder is empty. Like, there's no <laughs> way that they're just like yeah, like randomly showed up and figured that behavior out. You know, no, I, yeah, I, I, know. I wonder how much of it is like how much social like interaction is involved in like the, the migration jump. You know, like mm -hmm. if it's because if they're showing up in big groups as we know and they leave must be leaving in big groups like 
is there like one one guy that's like, oh man, I'm running late, <laughs> and everyone's like, oh, we gotta go, like, and they all leave <laughs> at once, like, like you know, there's got to be something that, dr- like, obviously, like you're saying, barometric pressure, like, uh, you know, they're they're looking at the good weather, like everybody that's trying to travel, but like, there is there's like their one guy that's like, I'm leaving tomorrow. And that's it. it. And then, and then they all leave. Yeah. <laughs> like, is that like a? I don't know. I mean, they, I think that happens with flocking birds for sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, the orcas are doing it right. That's right. They're talking exactly. to each other. Yeah. <laughs> they know. They know what's up. We are screwed. <laughs> the orcas and the birds have cetaceans, cephalopods, and now birds. It's, yeah. We're we're screwed. It's happening. <laughs> Buckle down. <laughs> yeah, here we go. <laughs> I got to read this um, short, thankfully, um, and and pretty straightforward article. You know, I, you, I I was given the easy one apparently about caching behaviors um, in in birds and and when they like when a bird hides its food and when it decides it needs to move its food that it has hidden. Um, it was a it looks like it was a pretty straightforward study using corvids as usual. Um, as we know, corvids good candidates for this always showing, always showing off those corvids. Um, and so they took two species, uh, pinion jays and, um, Clark's nutcrackers, um, pinions being super sociable. They, they, they hang out in big groups, um, and forage in big groups and store food in big groups and Clark's nutcrackers who are, um, are much more solitary birds and are used to not having too many others around, like watching what they do. So they set up these studies, uh, to watch how they would react, um, in different situations. One caching food presented with food and when caching it, the study was pretty basic. Um, from what I'm trying to rehash this right now, so bear with me. Um, they put, um, a, a either a jay or a, a nutcracker in a um in an enclosure and offered them food and places to to hide them in um they used uh, ice cube trays and sand and uh they would watch them cash and uh and then they'd put a an observer into another <laughs> into another uh container near them and watch watch what they do with an observer on hand um uh and Basically, the pinions, you know, move stuff right away, whether something's watching or not. If if they think that if they think that somebody could have been spying on their on their maneuvering, then they were moving them right away. And the nutcrackers mm-hmm. would only move the food, rehide the food if they were observed caching it in the beginning, um, which I feel like stands to reason based on their living habits and their social habits and things like that. But it is interesting to know that they are aware of being watched and to what extent and to what, you know, uh, I guess what the repercussions are <laughs> of, of, of this like situation and all of that. Ultimately for me, this is no surprise, right? Corvids are Corvids. We know that they're no, I mean, they're passing the mirror test. Like we are, we are not dealing with house sparrows. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, I just, for me, the, my, my takeaway of this is just that I'm going to start watching, I think closer, 
Like I want to uh, not just my own food habits, but I'm going to start watching the Blue Jays in, in my neighborhood and see how they handle this. Yeah, I mean they're remembering where they're putting stuff. They're, it's not like they're they're waiting, you know, on hand. This is they're hiding their stuff and they're waiting and they're seeing like they're remembering and and they're moving stuff so that when they go back later on, it's still there. Like this isn't just like a, a reaction a reactionary behavior. This is like a uh, this is like them planning for a long winter because they're not. Mm -hmm. um, I should mention neither of these species are particularly long range migrants. Uh, nut, the nutcrackers are only uh, like a elevation migrant and pinions only really move for food. So they're, they're, and they're not even very nomadic as it is. It's, it's, mm -hmm. a, they're, you know, they're not like, you know, cross bills and things like that. So, um, it's an easy one to watch and understand why they're doing this. There isn't like yeah. a, it's not just a mad dash for resources. This is like, I got a plan for the winter kind of thing. So it's, this is a really cool, I mean, the article is really short, but this is very, very cool. I have no good, um, information as to who wrote this or anything and i did a horrible job at that but it was <laughs> i was super wrapped up in it i i pay attention to all this corvid stuff so you know the uh, that jennifer ackerman book what was that one oh, called? Yeah, yeah. like uh the bird way the bir or what a bird knows and she's done a lot of the genius of bird that one that genius was the of birds one. that's the that's one, the one. Yeah, you know like, like all of this stuff is not new but they keep coming out with more information yeah. that's like what when are we when are they going to start writing in cursive is all i really <laughs> want to know like <laughs> so. you know there, there's all this research going into bird behavior and what i don't understand is why they don't just ask david sibley I mean, <laughs> he knows what it's like to be a bird yeah, he, he wrote, wrote a, a whole, whole book, book about it yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> i think especially too like these two birds and like corvids in general they just always look so paranoid and like so oh, suspicious yeah. and like there's uh -huh. <laughs> the one picture they there are the two and it's like the caching bird is basically like i see you i see you looking at me and the other bird's trying to be like i'm not looking at you not, sure. yeah. <laughs> not me definitely not looking um yeah i don't know I, I i i'm also curious to know if i would not be surprised if caching birds like corvids understand other birds that also cache to know like which yeah. ones are most likely to like steal their stashes instead of yeah. like, you know, a bird that doesn't have that, that characteristic or that behavior. If they're like not worried about that bird watching them, I wonder if they have that kind of recognition. Yeah. Oh, almost certainly. I can't they have I, to I surprised if they didn't. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah like it would have been cool if they repeated the study with like a bird that doesn't have caching behavior to see if the outcome yeah, is Yeah, that would be cool. I'm, I'm a scientist what, now, oh, guys. I don't. House I, <laughs> I got ideas. Let me get on that. Let me get on that. Yeah, I'd like I can to do the work. It. Just the like idea first. Stellar's Stellar's jays, and then and then a non-caching bird in like the Pacific Northwest, and to see because yeah. they're like the Stellar's are like they're blamed for everything. So maybe, maybe they're maybe yeah. We'll, yeah. Maybe we'll get them. Maybe we'll put them back in people's good graces. So. Yeah. I just appreciate that the opinion jays take the same strategy with their seeds that I take when I uh, drive with my binoculars and have to like park somewhere when I'm on my 
<laughs> when I'm out birding. Like, you know, I'm 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 looking around, I'm checking to see if anyone's watching me, I'm putting my binoculars like in the glove box or under the seat <laughs> or something. And uh, you know, no one's gonna take my but if someone's looking at me, I'm gonna I'm gonna move them. I'm gonna put them somewhere else. So yeah, I feel the opinion, Jays. I do the same thing. Yeah, this is like when I put my almond milk in the fridge at work. <laughs> exactly in the very matter. very back yeah. you hide it in a um, in stuff's an ice cube tray full yeah. of sand that's <laughs> not exactly <laughs> we'll move on to the question of the month this week and i had a i had a big one planned to talk about like uh listservs and the nature of listservs and whatnot but i'm gonna i'm gonna i want to put a pin in that one i'm gonna save that one for later uh because it is it is june it is the high time for baby birds. Everything has babies out there. Uh, there's uh, young first-year birds literally all over the place of every species by now. So I want to know, because it is baby bird season, what is your favorite baby bird? I was ready to tear apart list serves for you. <laughs> completely ready. Yeah. <laughs> This is, uh, this is hard. <laughs> um, I I think I'm gonna go with egrets just because oh, I love so yeah. how frazzled they look like Doc from Back to the Future. Yes. Like every single Absolutely. one of them <laughs> looks like they've been electrocuted. Yeah. And Marty, I don't know Marty. why that's so funny to me, but where's my um, fish, Marty? Exactly. Exactly. Incredible. Um, but baby flamingos are kind of up there for me too, because they're just they're so downy and fluffy and their legs just look ridiculous. Um, yeah. yeah, I don't know. So Those are my looking. two. Yeah, good. Call. I went with two because I couldn't pick one. Yeah, why not? Smuggle <laughs> both in. <laughs> I've got two too, so two as well. I should. I'm saving to the end. You guys got to go. Okay, I'll go. Uh, you know, you know, it's such. I got to put a plug in here. It's no. such baby bird season right now that this is when we're recording this this is the big atlas weekend oh there you go yeah we've got six different projects from newfoundland to puerto rico all out like actively competing against each other this weekend to see who can find the most breeding behavior well last weekend yeah but as far as my favorite baby bird goes you know um i did find like a super cute like brand new black and white warbler the other day oh really i don't think i've ever seen a baby black and white warbler. it was like you know like baby birds are tiny of course and warblers are pretty small but every time you see like a brand new fledgling warbler they're just so tiny yeah like they're so tiny that was that was awesome and then i was thinking like well that was cool because it was like so recently but like what's my favorite and I was thinking like, well, when I was a kid, I used to raise chuckers, you know, the, oh, yeah. the little, the little quail and like, man, they also the tiniest yeah. little chicks, like the tiniest, they're like dime sized, but they're cute because they're, you know, downy and fluffy and running yeah. all over the place. And I was like, ah, oh, yeah, but that's, you know, and then, and then I landed, you know, you got to go with something kind of weird. What about a Hotsin chick? Yeah. Like just the funkiest little Out thing crawling around bird with claws bird with claws yeah yeah okay. oh i think that's where i'm landing okay you okay. gotta go with like favorite okay. that was gonna be one of mine so i gotta pivot here real quick <laughs> that's why i'm going last that's fine that's right. glad you had two yep put yeah. your back out baby out it's a good thing yep 
I ran through like every baby bird image that I could conjure in my head for this. And, you know, I like, like Mo said, like egrets and, or, or like a night heron or something. I was like, yeah, that's funny. They're cute. And all of that stuff or ducks, just any baby duck. I mean, come classic, on, right? Yeah. So cute. Right. But, um, for me, actually my favorite is because I've had this interaction a few times and I, I only just now thought of this, like literally on the spot, baby rails are oh, yeah. un believably cute yeah. like we see either clapper or virginia rails and and they're a like they're not that shy they're all they're running all over the place so like you get to see them more often when they're babies i think especially clapper rails in my experience but they're just these little black erasers running through the grass mm-hmm. in the marsh like they literally just look like little black erasers and if you don't know what's happening and you see them it, they, like and you see an adult completely people are like what the hell is that excuse my language can i say that <laughs> that's fine yeah <laughs> um and uh you can just throw my uh american bitter and bleep in there if you need to um <laughs> but yeah yeah baby rails um for me like clapper rails specifically for me because that's what i have the most experience with but so you know baby rails very small very cute black rail smallest rail how small how small do you imagine a baby black rail would have to be like that would have to be oh, like no. as small as like a like a perching bird. I'm pretty like sure a, they hatch full grown, don't they? Yeah, they have to, <laughs> right? Like a kiwi. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Is there even a picture of I was, a? I was just thinking black that. rail chick. Like, does I, that actually okay. exist? I so don't think I've ever seen. I used one. to work. I used to volunteer at the North Carolina Museum of Natural. Sciences and down in the basement where they have all the bird collections, there's actually this little um, display from like 1890 something of a um, of a black rail they used to breed in like Raleigh, North Carolina, and it, and it's chicks that were like accidentally killed by a farmhand in a wet field or something, and they they taxidermy them and put them, and it, I don't know why I'd never thought about this until just now, but yeah, so the black rail is super super little. And then the chicks are like, boy, okay. I don't even know. It's like a full grown, like an, I like, like an, a ruby throated like hummingbird. Yeah. Like a, like an iPod yeah. or, an, or an AirPod, you know, the earbuds. They're so little. Um, that's like what size they are. Yeah. They're super, super small. So um, I have, I have two and both are from a recent trip that I took to California. I was in the Bay area. We did an ABA community weekend then. Uh, but I also was kind of hanging out with family and doing, doing family touristy stuff uh, in San Francisco and Oakland. And um, we visited one night um, some friends that used to live here in North Carolina and now live in San Francisco. And they were so, so excited to, um, to tell me, uh, because among my non-birding friends, uh, and I'm sure you share this, uh, you are the bird person <laughs> and the person that you have to share all the bird uh, information mm-hmm. and sightings and experiences with. <laughs> so they had uh, an Anna's hummingbird nesting in the avocado tree in their backyard. And uh, they were so excited for us to come over so that I could see the baby Anna's hummingbirds in the you know in the little spiderweb nest they that they had, but they fledged literally the day before we planned to come and visit them. So uh, I'm sorry that I missed your hummingbirds, Tim and uh, and Tim and Jane. They're not listening to this, but yeah, those um, are super California sentence to uh, the Anna's hummingbird nest in the avocado, avocado tree. Avocado tree, yeah, none, none more <laughs> California than that. that? <laughs> <laughs> um, but I did see some baby birds. We went to Alcatraz, and I don't know if any of you have been to Alcatraz, but what surprised me yeah. about the prison is that it is also this massive seabird colony. <laughs> 
Uh, so there's like 10,000 Brant's cormorants Whoa. and like 5,000 Western gulls uh, nesting all over the island with the prison. And the Western gulls don't care. So they're like, literally nesting three feet away from the pathway where thousands of tourists pass every single day. And so we were walking by and there were all these little cute little fluffy gray with black spots, Western gold chicks, like hopping around getting fed by their parents Mm -hmm. coming in. They were adorable. It was, it was fantastic. I'd never seen a gold chick before. And uh, so this was, this was new for me and uh, they are, they are great. Western gold, great baby bird. Is a steady stream of uh, fried food from the pier. Oh, right, you right? know it. You know it. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's what they're getting uh, fed. That's right? a busy, like, busy uh, bird busy. highway between yeah. the pier and the island. Yes. <laughs> I would also say I know I've already given my answer, but no, if my if one. my Instagram algorithm could talk, it would be like you're a liar. <laughs> it's baby piping clovers, a hundred percent. That's like all, all day, my Instagram feed is right now is like baby piping clover chicks, like all the time and i like every one of them so like i'm just fueling the fire really that's, right. that's a listserv yeah. comment too that's a that's a for sure baby piping plovers are a listserv regular and yeah, yeah. That's where I'm from. <laughs> so. yeah those uh caradriformes the they have some cute babies there's they no sure two do. ways about it yeah before we go yeah if you please. want yeah i i have a trivia question for you please guys. bring it Love it. So we did like a trivia night the other day for our Atlas event. Mm-hmm. And uh, since we're talking about bird names a little bit, I thought I'd pull one of these and, and see how well you guys do. I like it. So if you take the ABA checklist, right? Mm-hmm. What is the single most often represented word? So just single word. Uh, your options here got options for you. Oh, oh it's a good. multiple choice. Okay, <laughs> yeah, multiple, multiple choice. <laughs> Thank God. Okay, <laughs> is it is it common, hmm. black, okay. American, or warbler? Ooh, so it's like thirty some species of warblers on the AVA checklist. So that's the bar there. Maybe maybe more, but they're not all called warbler. That's a good point. Most of them are, though. That's true. And American. Boy, there's a lot of American, but I don't know if there's 30 Americans. See, I was going to say, like, backed or tailed. Yeah. And that wasn't even an option. So I, I think like, that I would go with black for that reason, though. Like, in, like a descriptive yeah. word instead of... Yeah, I don't know. Because oh, it's black-throated, black-tailed, mm-hmm. black-chinned. This is a good, this is a hard question, Gabriel. You're welcome. So the, the, the answer, it was common, American, black, or warbler. And that's all we have time for, folks. We'll come back next week. Well. <laughs> okay, you, you are very close with black. That is the second most, okay. most common. But I think when you say there's 30 some warblers, you're forgetting that there's also like all the phyloscopus warblers, the reed warblers, all those vagrants. Yeah. And Alaska. Alaska. There are 62 warblers. 62 warblers on the ABA checklist. And that is. Of the checklist. Well, no, it was before we added Hawaii. I guess we're over 1,000 now, but. It is the single most represented word. Wow. There's 57 occurrences of black, 36 of common, and only 19 American. Wow. Good trivia. Very good. Gabriel. I like that. 
I should ask all my guests to come up with a trivia <laughs> question every time we come in here because that was fun. Um, this will be my but- last uh, episode. <laughs> 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 I certainly hope not. Um, thank you all for joining me. Uh, Gabriel Foley, Sean Milnes, Moe Stike. Always a pleasure. I will have links to all their stuff. Please listen to Moe's Bird Shirt podcast. It's not Bird Shirt, but you know you know what it is. You know what it is. You know what it is. Um, it's It's back. Back and better than ever. Do the atlas. Um, do all do all the stuff, uh, mm-hmm. guys. It's so it's so nice to talk to you. So good to see you. I hope you have a great summer. And thank you so much for joining me. Talk Thanks so good. much, Nate. Thank yeah, you. Thank you. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you enjoy this podcast, the best way to support it, aside from making your donation to the nesting season appeal, of course, is to join the ABA. You get a lot of great benefits, including our fantastic magazines, discounts to partners like Princeton University Press, Beauty Books, Corner Lab of Ornithology, and more. You can find out how to do all of that at aba.org slash join. Okay, so because of some changes in the way our membership software picks up the reasons people join the ABA, I haven't been seeing members who joined because of the podcast this month that has been fixed so let's get to the shout outs apologies for any repeats thank you this week to lachlan bebout of new orleans louisiana eugene blundell and aaron layer of seattle washington steve bonamo and Josette Kalari of asbury new jersey cynthia carlson of madison wisconsin tyler cobb of lake hopatcong new jersey michael dobiel of madison wisconsin mo and carol molander of marion massachusetts nate and barb Palmer of Fayetteville, Georgia, Carol Rosowski of Boynton Beach, Florida, James Rivers of Darlington, South Carolina, Vicki Rogerson of Palm Beach Gardens, Florida, and Rick Zabo, who I'm pretty sure I mentioned last week, of Picton, Ontario, all of whom recently joined the ABA this month and noted the podcast as a reason for doing so. Thank you so much. Welcome to the ABA. We really appreciate that support. Technical production is by John Lowry, who has some words about the English common names of some of our citizens, strongly of the belief that you can give lovebirds a bad name. Social media is by Maggie Fitzgibbon, who never estimates the size of Corvid Flock. She always counts all the single J's, all the single J's. You can find us online at ABA.org and on social media most everywhere is American Birding Association. On Twitter, we are at ABA. Here's hoping that those Alaska birders come up with a whooper swan this year. I'm not even picky about the situation. It's swanted dead or alive questions comments podcast at eba.org i'm nate swick thanks for listening stay healthy everybody see you next week